Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and this is our health diagnosis and political prognosis episode. Specifically, we will try to discern from very minimal and distorted public information just what is the health of the President of the United States and why that question matters politically, especially in terms of democratic prospects for flipping control of the U.S. Senate. Because if we're going to really heal this country and planet, it's not going to be enough to just win the White House. We have to also recapture the Senate, hold the House, and then push forward a bold agenda. So there are less than three weeks left in this election. It's incredible how much has transpired in the past two weeks, and developments keep coming every day, if not every hour. So we're going to try to sort out as much of this madness as we can and see if we can keep our eyes on the prize of what's most important, getting as many people as possible to vote so that we can stop the nonstop attacks, save what's left of our democracy, and get back to the business of trying to build a true democracy in color. And for that daunting task, I'm joined as always by my co-host, Charlene Chang. Hi, Charlene. How are you weathering this storm? Hi, Steve. We're doing okay. Okay is all relative these days. So we've had a number of uh, days where we can go outside and breathe clean air in California, Mm -hmm. smoke-free. And so we are feeling grateful about that. And But yes, in terms of who's counting, I have recently figured out that it's been about seven months since the shelter-in-place orders were first placed in March. And one of my friends and I still kind of laugh about the fact that we texted each other when the orders were placed and we both said, I can't believe the schools are saying we cannot go back until after spring break. What are we going to do without childcare for two weeks? What are we going to do, right? Because we both work, both of our partners work, and we are just, as parents, freaking out about 14 days without wow. like having to have our kids at home for 14 days while we work. And meanwhile, it's been I think, over 200 days. And so, yes, the, you know, life is just so different today than it was um, this spring. And the new challenge right now is what to do about Halloween. So it's my daughter's favorite holiday, like it is probably for a lot of kids. And a lot of families are just trying to figure out how to make it a thing and how to give kids a feeling of Halloween, even though they can't go trick-or-treating and they're going to have costumes, but then how do you show it off (laughs) if you don't get to walk around and go trick-or-treating? But we're going to we're still going to dress up. We're still going to decorate the house and we might just like stand outside our house and get pictures taken or something. We're all improvising in so many different ways. And I know we talk about the, on the, you know, the beginning of the pod each, each week kind of about, you know, your little microcosm, what's happening. But I do think that's something that doesn't get enough attention nationally in terms of all of the parents, all of the children, what's happening with education. I mean, it actually is a crisis that is really not getting um, I think the the level of focus and intention that it requires, um, and then even writ large, more than that, I mean, there's just so many things that we've adjusted to that I don't think we ever thought we could imagine we would be adjusting to. And so I think that's going to be fascinating once we get past all of this. But should we be flying all over the country to meetings, or can you just do meetings virtually? Should we be getting in cars and driving downtown to big buildings? Do you even need big buildings in the same way. Yeah. Should so, we get? Should we ever go get our own groceries? I mean, some of us still do, but many, many people mm-hmm. have shifted to just ordering groceries online because of the convenience, and right. and then now they figure they don't have to spend as much time in the grocery store. Right, which is also somewhat commuting as well. So, 
once we stop the, the march of fascism and white nationalism and a deadly global pandemic, then we'll have a lot of specific things to get to in terms of how we, how we function as a society and should function. That's right. So, oh, I just, I also wanted to just take a quick moment to celebrate and point out that today, Steve, is the one-year anniversary of our podcast. It's hard to believe. It's hard to believe and what a difference a year makes. Yeah. <laughs> so we launched on October 17th last year, 2019, and we've come out with an episode every other week since then. Today, uh, if my calculations are correct, is our 30th episode so proud of us and so grateful to all of our listeners and supporters. And so again, a shout out to everybody who tunes in for our episodes every two weeks and tells their friends about it and family members about it. And we know, you know, we hear from many of you and it makes our work so much feel so meaningful and uh, really just helping us to put this podcast out there. We really enjoy putting it out there and really enjoy hearing that it means a lot to you to get our perspectives on what's happening around politics, around race, and um, the intersection of them. And so, yeah, that's my anniversary message to all of us. And um, again, let's go forward and have another great year of episodes. And yeah, and I just want to <laughs> echo all of that and and thank everybody who you know comments, emails, on Facebook or whatnot. Is that you know I think we we have the great team that puts this together, and we all put a lot into it. And so it's been. You know, like, like over a year ago, we did this didn't exist, right? It didn't exist in our lives, it didn't exist in the world. And I think it's been extraordinarily fulfilling to be able to make this happen. And when we get feedback from people about it, I think it just makes it even more special. So happy anniversary. Yeah, there's there's definitely, I was just thinking about how when we started this podcast, we, we knew, I mean, it was already Trump era and we knew there was a lot to cover and craziness and a lot of stuff to talk about, but pre-pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> and I just don't think we had anticipated how much everything, you know, so many things would go like basically sideways and get that much more complex as well as the response to essentially the Black Lives Matters movement this year, the mm -hmm. um, elevation of the awareness and the protests internationally around the globe to protest against anti-Black racism. And we are just really glad that we had a chance to have this platform, this vehicle to, to talk to listeners about a lot of issues. And there's a, definitely a lot happening now. I mean, it's, uh, we're just a couple weeks away from Election Day. And you know it because the political ads are coming fast and furious. Like my phone is constantly, you know, I'm signed up. You know, you sign up for one of these mailing lists mm -hmm. <laughs> and then you get, you end up on all these mailing lists. So it's like I get texts from different campaigns and email and emails, you know, saying this is the, the last time you can donate to this, this campaign um, fundraising efforts. And a lot of people are, including myself, constantly trying to read the articles and read these fundraising email and try to figure out in this very short window, what is it that people can do still to make a difference, to help Democrats win the White House and flip the Senate. Last episode, we talked a lot about that in terms of how people can help with the presidential race. And today, I'm glad that we're going to get to do a deeper dive into what can be done about the Senate races again in this short window. But first, I wanted to get to our first topic today, which is on Trump's health. And again, the last time we talked, our last episode, we had not, you know, th this had not happened yet. Trump had not had COVID. And then 
between then and now, he had COVID, he is apparently recovering. And so today we're going to talk about his health matters and why his health matters politically and just how sick he was, that he might still be, or could he be again? And Steve, I know that when he was in the hospital, when that news came out, you got really obsessed. You were saying you were just refreshing your phone and checking Twitter, see how he was doing. I think a lot of people were doing that. And I know I say this a lot, but when I think of that moment, I think the news came pretty late at night. It was again like that. If I was just thinking, if this was a movie script, you just you couldn't make it up that exactly. Trump himself eventually did get COVID after saying, you know, for so long that he didn't believe in it and was just so irresponsible and spreading so much untruth and basically all the damage that he did. And then he ended up getting it himself. So now less than two weeks later, it seems like he's recovered and he's back out there doing rallies and being irresponsible, making wild claims, spreading lies. So why is it important for progressives and the future leadership of this country to understand this moment uh, in the context of politics? Yeah, no, I, I obviously was very uh, obsessed with the whole thing. And I've always had this deep fascination or, of you know, the presidency, history, presidential politics. I was 10 years old. I was sitting in front of the TV watching the Watergate hearings. And so just from a historical standpoint, it was very fascinating to me. And like you're saying, just from almost like, I mean, if, I don't know if it's Hollywood or Greek mythology or Shakespearean, but the person who was mocking and not paying attention to the disease actually gets the disease. And as I add this whole other additional dimension to it. So there was just so much craziness um, in terms of what was happening that just trying to get my bearings around it. It was just on its own merits was historical. Then what about like, who is going to be the president of the United States? Is he in fact competent? What's going to happen with our, you know, the country's enemies? Are people get sort of all kinds of stuff that I was grappling with. And I think a lot of people were, but as I've had a chance to reflect on it, I was trying to think about, I felt all along was also very important politically in terms of what we're trying to accomplish, but I didn't really have the words or the insight of the analysis about that. And so I'm, I've had a chance to think about it more. And I think I have a better understanding of why this question is so important to the politics of this particular election. And so that's what I wanted to just say a little bit about. And I think that I became concerned that the health issues could detract and change the environment, the political environment in which this election is actually taking place. And that environment is currently very favorable to Democrats right now, right? So in elections are often about a larger narrative or gestalt, right? So in 92, when Clinton ran, I ran for a school board that same year, there was this gestalt around young new leadership, right? Clinton's one of the youngest people to ever run for presidency. He had doubled down on that youth by choosing Gore to run with him. And I think, frankly, when I ran for school board, I benefited from that as being a 28-year-old person running for school board in San Francisco because the mood, the overarching dynamic was new leadership, youth, energy. The overarching dynamic of this election is that this is the referendum on Trump's presidency in general and then specifically in his handling of the pandemic, and almost all of the available evidence that is out there, polling data, early voting patterns, absentee ballot requests, really suggest that this election is shaping up to be a massive repudiation of Trump, to the extent of which he's getting nearly two-thirds of white college-educated voters want him out. Biden's getting 47% of the overall white vote in the latest Washington Post poll. 
which is a higher share of whites than any Democrat has received since Jimmy Carter in 1976, notably for future discussion, that's still not a majority of whites. And even Jimmy Carter lost the white vote, 48-52 to Gerald Ford. So in terms of what is the actual composition of a new American majority is something that uh, we should not lose sight of. And people of color, of course, have been clear since day one that, you know, this, uh, Trump's political strength has always been rooted in racism and appeals to white nationalism. So the overwhelming majority of people of color have always opposed him. But because the rejection of Trump is so widespread in terms of what's been happening over the past you know, months and weeks, it's spilling over into the Senate races. And the political undertow has the potential of pulling down several incumbent Republican senators who have been his defenders and apologists. And so because of this unique environment, Democrats are competitive in far more Senate seats than they probably should be. It's like Kansas and South Carolina. So when I was thinking, reflecting about Trump's health and the prognosis and the development, the political concern was not wanting anything to alter the environment that the election is incurring in. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense to me once you put it that way. I have to say that I was definitely hearing from some people and seeing online and social media, people basically in the moment they heard the news experience schadenfreude, which is a German word for deriving pleasure from the misery of others. And, you know, people basically saying that they want, and I don't agree with it, but basically saying that they were wishing that he would get very sick. And even in that moment, I realized that I was also thinking, I understand maybe in a, what people were thinking in the moment, but also the problem with that is all the uncertainty that would stem from that if things changed a lot, right? And so that's one your thing you're saying is right now we have a situation where it's at least unknown politically, like in terms of the environment. And I also think that there was this question of if Trump got really sick, would there be this sympathy factor? Would there be some voters, uh, specifically some white voters, who might still be feeling torn between Trump and Biden? Would they somehow think, you know what, I really feel sorry for this guy. I'm going to give my vote to him because he's so sick and I, I just feel sympathy. Right. Yeah. Now, on that, and actually on that, on that Schadenfreude front, one of my um, running buddies, Laura Brady, was the, one of the researchers from my book, she sent around this tweet from this guy, Steve Hostetter, right, when, uh, from uh, October 2nd. It says, anyone wishing that Trump dies of COVID is being a real asshole. We should all hope he recovers in time to see Texas turn blue, lose the election, get indicted, and die in prison from something else entirely. <laughs> so there was that. But lots, of, um, lots of different emotional responses. All right. Yeah. So, but yeah, in terms of the thing about the, the political fallout of it, and that the consequences, right, that was my concern, um, is that since the dynamic and the mood is to hold Trump accountable, and it looks like to also hold accountable the Republican senators who've enabled him this time, that if he got sick, it could change that mood in terms of him no longer needing to be experiencing a political reckoning because he was having a medical reckoning, if not a, you know, moral um, one as well. And so, th but that might then take the energy out of the political price that needs to be paid and, was, and looks like it's in the process of being paid in these different races, particularly in the Senate races. So my bottom line is I just want what's playing out to continue to play out, right? Large numbers of people want him out. They're casting their ballots in large numbers. 
And in the process, his Republican allies are also quite imperiled. Right. So, again, no sudden moves, no dramatic changes from now until Election Day is what we are looking for, is what is most ideal, right? It's what I'm hearing. And in that way, this can just continue on and, and stay on track. So in terms of actually analyzing what's up with Trump's health, I know, Steve, that you just had a chance to sit down and interview an, an esteemed medical professional on the topic. Can you tell us more about that and how did it go? Yeah, it was great. So uh, Dr. Bob Wachter, and I came across him on Twitter after Trump uh, went to the hospital and he was commenting regularly about what was going on with Trump with these you know, lengthy Twitter threads that were very you know, clear, sharp, on point. And it's been you know, extremely insightful. His threads really helped to explain what's going on, particularly as Trump's team and his doctors were trying to hide and distort uh, what was actually happening. So, um, and he's been on you know, a lot of media interviews, been on Rachel Maddow, et cetera. So I was really glad that he was able to make time to sit down with us for an interview. So let's right now go and listen to that interview. I'm honored to be joined by Dr. Bob Wachter from the University of California, San Francisco Medical Center, where he is the chair of the UCSF Department of Medicine. He's credited with coining the term hospitalists back in 1996 and is often considered the father of the hospitalist field, the fastest growing specialty in the history of modern medicine. He's the author of 250 articles and six books and is a frequent contributor to the New York Times and Wall Street Journal. His Twitter bio says his career is, quote, what happens when a poli-sci major becomes an academic physician? I highly recommend following him on Twitter, where his handle is at Bob underscore Wachter, W-A-C-H-T-E-R. His tweets are extremely informative and often entertaining. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a great pleasure. Thanks for having me. Actually, why don't we start with the Twitter presence, which I found kind of fascinating. Can you first tell us a little bit about how you came to start tweeting about COVID? Yeah, it was mid-March. I think it was, I think it was about March 15th or so. Um, I was worried about dying. I'm 62 years old, and here in San Francisco, we were waiting for the tsunami to hit. And so I was nervous, and I, I got a sense there was an information vacuum out there, and everybody needed and wanted to know more. I, it, it seems a long, long time ago, but that desperate feeling was amazing. Right. Uh, and the other thing was I run a very big department. I have 3,000 people in my department. I make big decisions every day on, a, on normal days. But what had happened at UCSF where I work, we'd gone to a form of healthcare martial law where all decisions had been given to a very small group of, of people in a command center, which is actually the right thing to do. You just don't have time mm -hmm. for departments and silos and all the usual bureaucracy. So I found I was spending the entire day taking in information on Zoom calls and learning more and more about this uh, and had nothing really to do. It was <laughs> something I haven't felt for about 25 years. So the combination of fear and, uh, and having a little time on my hands and getting a sense that everybody was desperate to learn about this thing. Uh, you know, I had been on Twitter for a few years. I had about 20,000 followers, so, you know, had a decent presence and just started tweeting. And, and then it was like, you know, in, in those commercials where you see see the meter start spinning around all, you know, right. hundreds and thousands of people liked it. And I said, wow, I guess there's a, there's a market here. People are interested in this kind of information and it's just grown from there. That's great. So it, it, in terms of your, in, in UCSS, direct experience with COVID, uh, can you give us some sense of like how, how involved you've been, the volume of patients you've seen, et cetera? Sure. Uh, <clears throat> remarkably benign. 
uh, and that's that's mostly because we're in San Francisco. So, mm-hmm. as I said, you know, the feeling in early to mid March after we saw Wuhan and we saw Italy and then we saw the nursing home in Seattle and the cruise ships. The feeling was of standing on the beach in San Francisco and waiting for the tsunami to hit. And, uh, uh, you know, palpable fear on the part of everyone and scram the hospital, just scrambling to get ready, you know, Mm -hmm. sort of, you know, canceling everything we could possibly cancel to make room for hundreds of patients. And ultimately, that's that's what happened in New York. And then, you know, you're standing on the beach and the waves hit your maybe mid-calves is kind of what it felt like. We certainly saw patients. It was real. It was scary. We didn't, nobody knew how to treat this thing or what it was about in the beginning. And the most we ever got up to was about 30 patients. And we're about a 700-bed hospital. Contrast that with a similar hospital to us, for example, New York uh, Presbyterian in, uh, in Manhattan, which had 500 patients, two or 300 in the ICU. We had 30 patients, maybe 10, 15 in the ICU. Then it got mellower in May, and everybody was telling the story of this great California miracle. Mm -hmm. And then California started to get surgery in June, not quite what they saw across the South, but but not uh, not benign the way it was. And San Francisco had a little blip up, and we all said, is this going to be our moment where we're going to get hammered? And the city, the mayor, the public health officials... Everybody said, folks, you know, time to get back on the saddle. You've been great, but people are letting their guard down. And lo and behold, we peaked up again at about the same place and came back down. And so the the statistic that's most telling is in San Francisco, we've had a total of 125 deaths since the thing started. Los Angeles, which did not turn it around, has had about 6,500. New York, about 25,000. Those places are about 10 times bigger than San Francisco, but not 100 times bigger. And if the country had matched San Francisco's per capita death rate, rather than 220,000 dead, we'd be at about 40 or so, 40,000. So we'd have saved 160, 170,000 lives if the country had been uh, had, had had mirrored what San Francisco accomplished. So UCSF has been spectacular. The city has been spectacular, the mayor, the public health officials, but most importantly, the people. I mean, nobody here, you walk around the city and people are mostly wearing masks and following the rules. Uh, you don't hear anybody, you know, saying, give me liberty or give me death. People kind of understand the science. And uh, it's been very impressive and very heartening and sad in a way because I think the rest of the country could have been that, but for a lot of reasons was not. Okay, so in terms of turning to Trump's situation, can you, can you first give us an overview of the typical or expected course of disease for a, like a 74-year-old man? Like how quickly does it progress? What's the range of reactions, et cetera? Yeah, it's, it's quite variable, which makes it, you know, hard to prognosticate. So, and, and I, you know, as, as, as regular non-medical, non-science people have sort of learned along for the last year, we've all learned this together. I think one of the most challenging things is learning probabilistic thinking, which is, you know, when you go to med school, that's the first thing you learn. You learn to think in probabilities. And, and, and so that's, so answering your question if you take all people who get COVID, they have a, and we finally have pinned this down, they have a mortality rate of about 0.6%. So one in 150 will die. That's not zero. It's about four or five times that of the flu, uh, but it's pretty low. You know, your odds are pretty good if you, uh, if, if you get COVID, if you're the average person. Once you're 74, uh, the odds go up a lot to maybe about 3%. So, from, so maybe five times higher, five to 10 times higher. 
Once you're 74 and a male, it's a little higher than that. Men do worse than women. Once you're 74, male and overweight, it's higher than that. And nobody really knows why overweight is such a powerful risk factor. It, it is in other diseases, but not, not to the degree it is in COVID. So when you put all that stuff together, at the moment his test came back positive, he probably had a 5 to 8% chance of dying in the mm-hmm. next few weeks. He probably had a 20 to 25% chance of getting sick enough to need to go to the hospital. And so that's him when he gets started. Now, when you get the diagnosis, I know there's a lot of probabilities to hold on to here, but, but sort of that's what it is. Um, about 40% of people are asymptomatic, uh, maybe a little lower in older people. So he probably had a one in three chance once when he just got the test back of having absolutely no symptoms at all. Mm-hmm. And then once he starts having symptoms, he falls into a higher risk group. Now, once he's sick enough to go to the hospital, particularly with a low oxygen level, which he had, although his doctor obfuscated all over the place. Right. Uh, now his chances of dying are up to about 20 or 25%. So that Friday when we heard he's, you know, the helicopters come in, he's in mm-hmm. the hospital, his oxygen is low, we're starting him on two powerful medicines that we use for people that are pretty sick in the hospital and a third medicine that nobody else can get. I can't get myself, I couldn't give it to my patients. Um, it put him in a you know risk category of probably one in four, one in five that he was going to die, wow. and um, and then his subsequent course has been remarkably benign. Mm-hmm. You know, many people, as I said, one in four, one in five chance of dying. Probably a fifty percent chance of having a pretty bumpy course where he has lots of symptoms: fever, shortness of breath, uh, a cough, lots of mu- muscle aches, feeling right like crud. Um, and I would say when he was in the hospital, he probably had a one in four, one in five chance of having as benign a course as he appears to have. And I would emphasize that because we really don't know right. symptoms were. There was a lot of misdirection and, and some outright lying from his doctors. So we don't know. But clearly, you see him out on the stump now. He had, a, he had about as benign a course as one could have hoped for after he was sick enough to go to the hospital. Right. How, how sick do you think he was on that, particularly on that Friday when you, I mean, it's, obviously I'm not a doctor, but just following politics. I mean, the silence from him that day was so telling. No tweets, no even five second video, canceling his phone call. So it seemed like, seemed like something was seriously wrong. Yeah, what silence, was your take on yeah, that? Silence was nice. Uh, what, what do I, it, 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 I can tell you every physician, this is one when, you know, we don't do cocktail parties anymore, but this would be if a bunch of physicians got to a cocktail party, they would all be talking about is because it doesn't quite add up. Mm-hmm. And it, it doesn't quite add up in the following ways. Uh, he had to have been very sick. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had to have been very sick because of the medicines the doctors started, um, which we only use in people who are very sick. And you might say, well, he's a VIP, he's going to get the kitchen sink. Well, in one case, the, the steroid, the dexamethasone, the studies show that if you start it in someone who's not too sick, it causes net harm. Mm. It, 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 and I think every decent doctor who's taking care of COVID patients know that, knows that. So the fact that they started the, uh, the monoclonal antibodies, the remdesivir, and particularly the steroids, tell us at least that the doctors were pretty damn worried that he was going to get very sick and potentially need to go to the intensive care unit. His oxygen level... Uh, you know, it was, it was purposefully, I mean, the doctor said it went down to 93. And then another point, he said, well, it never went down to the low 80s. Right. Normal, you don't say unless it went down to the mid 80s. That's, Mm -hmm. you know, yours right now is 97 or 98. 93 
is significant, there's something wrong with your breathing, mid-80s is really significant and really worrisome. What's funky about that, though, is if he went down to the mid-80s, and then the reason was he had COVID pneumonia, the, 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 you know, the, the virus is in his lungs and it's causing inflammation in his lungs, it would, it's hard to put together how he would get better so quickly. You, know, mm -hmm. you, 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 can, you might get better from that. The medicines may help. It's going to take three, four, five, six days. So that's led to speculation of did he have a blood clot in his lungs? Did he have a reaction to one of the medicines, particularly the monoclonal antibodies, which are still new? Uh, so, I mean, the bottom line is he, was, he had to be, have been very sick. Uh, but the fact that he got better so quickly leaves us all head scratching. It does not quite fit together. And so we're all engaged in this kind of weird type of medical Kremlinology trying to, you know, read, <laughs> read these little tea leaves and figure out what went on. And I think most of us really do not know. Right. And then, so what's your, uh, what's the uh, experience been in terms of relapse or reinfection or how at risk or likely with any of that for him? He's probably out of the woods now in terms of his chances of dying from this. Uh, he was not at the end of his first week. That, that certainly, uh, we and others have seen many patients who, you know, tooled along just fine their first week. Maybe they had a fever and muscle aches and a little bit of shortness of breath, but not so bad, out of the woods, and then week two they get slammed and have to come to the hospital, have to go to the ICU, and some of them died. most famous case of that is Herman Cain, the former right. president candidate who was tweeting, uh, you know, if he was to be believed, was tweeting on week two, I think even to week three, how great he's doing and died a week later. So, right. um, but uh, Trump's now a little over two weeks out. It would be highly unusual uh, that he would now relapse and get super sick from his first infection, the one that was diagnosed on October 1st. Um, whether he still has symptoms, um, you know, can't believe what he's saying. So, uh, and he certainly, he and the doctors have put on the happiest possible face, but seeing him out there dancing, you know, two nights ago, he's probably feeling okay. He may feel a lakey. Now, when he tweeted that I feel 20 years younger, there is nothing about COVID that makes you feel 20 years younger. That I can guarantee. So that was probably his steroids speaking, which can give people the sense of euphoria and, uh, and, and, and wellness, even when you're quite sick. Right. So um, I'm guessing he still has some symptoms, but he may, he may feel fine. He's probably out of the woods in terms of him getting very sick and dying from this. Um, the things that can happen now, he can be just fine forever. But although we know that if you do sophisticated heart tests, for example, or a lung tests, a month or two out from people who have had COVID, even ones who have recovered and feel fine, you find abnormalities in their heart MRI exam, mm -hmm. uh, for example, in more than 50% of cases. We have absolutely no idea what that means. You know, it, it's a little scary. There, there's evidence of inflammation of your heart. You, you know, you don't want to have that if you can avoid it. But whether that will ultimately cause a weakening of their heart or rhythm uh, problems with their heart, uh, we do not have any idea. We haven't seen it yet. Uh, but it's possible. In terms of relapse and him, and him running around saying he's immune, well, most people who have COVID and recover will not get it again, but there now have been a, about a dozen or so well-documented cases of people who have had a second episode. That's the exception that proves the rule. I mean, with tens of, you know, uh, seven million cases in the United States, if reinfection was common, we'd see a lot of it. 
and the fact that we're still, you know, each case gets reported in the journals and reported in the newspapers tells you that reinfection is very, very rare, uh, which is great news because if it were common, that would be, that would say the vaccines may not work or may not work mm -hmm. for very long. So he's, you know, bottom line is he's probably going to be fine uh, from, uh, from this. The one last caveat is because he got the monoclonal antibodies, um, uh, and, and, and he's, of course, touting them as a miracle cure. We have right. no idea. You know, the early data on them are pretty promising. Uh, they may have helped. It may have had nothing to do with that. He may have just gotten lucky. There's no way to prove that. And that's why we do clinical studies with thousands of people. We don't just look at how one person do, did because it's almost, it's almost meaningless. But uh, what, one of the things that is unclear is what the impact of monoclonal antibodies are on your body's uh, normal efforts to uh, bolster its immune system to prevent another infection. Mm -hmm. And there's some preliminary thinking and, and a little bit of data that says the monoclonal and the body may see the monoclonal antibodies and not mount the kind of uh, innate or your own body's immune response that you normally would, in which case he may be a little less protected because the monoclonal antibodies will wear off mm -hmm. in a few weeks. He may be a little less protected than the average Joe after infection. But I'd say the bottom line is he probably is uh, free of at least significant worry about getting it again, at least for, uh, uh, you know, for all of us, we don't know how the long immunity is going to last. It may last a year, may last three, uh, but at least for the next foreseeable future, uh, you know, the idea that he's touting that I'm, you know, I've, I'm cured and I can't get this again. It's not that he can't, but he probably won't. So lastly, if, if, if you were advising Joe Biden from a medical standpoint, would you, would you recommend he appear on a debate stage with Trump next week? I think that's fine. I mean, at, at, at this point, you know, when Trump wanted to debate, I guess it would have been yesterday, yeah. uh, he would have been about 14 days out from his infection. And the, it's, it's very hard. There's no great test to tell you for sure that he is virus-free, even if you have a, a, a negative test, they can be false negative. So the guidelines from the CDC uh, <clears throat> are ones in which the, he fell in the middle of. Uh, the guidelines are if you have a pretty mild case um, and your immune system is fine, 10 days is probably fine. You're probably mm -hmm. clear. Uh, and that's, there's a whole lot of evidence supporting that. Uh, that's 10 days after the onset of symptoms. So he would have been okay. Uh, the guidelines also say if you have a particularly severe case, and or your immune system is low, you should wait 20 days. And because he appeared to have a severe case on that Friday, severe enough at least that his doctor started medicines, we only start for severe cases, and he was on the medicine steroids, which, which lower your immune system, he, he would have fallen more in that 20-day range. Was it likely that Biden could have gotten it from being on the same stage? No, it, would, it was very unlikely. Is it a foolish, unnecessary risk for a 77 you're all to stand uh, 12 feet away from a someone who just had COVID 14 days ago uh, with neither of them wearing masks, with one of them sometimes shouting. Uh, that's a dumb risk to take. So I think that they did the right thing and they should have done it virtually. By the time next week comes around, uh, he'll be at, or whenever the next scheduled, scheduled debate is, he'll be past the, the, the 20 day frame. And at that point, he is, uh, there's, there's essentially zero chance that he is still infectious.
so you're saying that the bottom line is that his prognosis then is likely up to the, the American voters in terms of what happens with him. Is that correct? Yeah, that, you know, his, his clinical course and his political course are, are very different animals. And, uh, uh, you know, I mean, one of the things that's been fascinating, I mean, I remember tweeting the, the night I learned he got sick. And I said, this could save, you know, it could be the first thing that he's done that actually saves tens of thousands of lives. If he gets it and he's chastened and he says, folks, this is real and wear a mask and be careful. And I guess I should have guessed, but didn't that he would double down on all of the old uh, untruths and, you know, and, and, and make it even worse. I, it's sort of hard to believe, but I guess I've learned that hard to believe right. things often come true. Again, that was Dr. Bob Wachter, uh, chair of the Department of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. Really helpful insight. Great interview. I'm glad he made time for us. Yeah, no, I was really uh, enjoyed doing that with him. And if people want to, you know, a really deep dive on what the UCSF doctors are saying, there's a great YouTube video they did on October 6th. And it's a panel discussion of several doctors and experts. And it's called President Trump's COVID-19 Diagnosis implications for transmission, treatment, and prognosis. So Steve, you said that the biggest concern about the political fallout from Trump's health has to do with its impact on Democrats' prospects for the Senate, which, by the way, is not anything, you know, I'm not hearing this in the news and nobody making this connection, connecting these dots. But you're going to have a column coming out in the nation real soon on this topic and so our listeners should be on the lookout for that. Again, it's uh, Steve's column in The Nation. The foundation for that column is a deep data dive on the winnability of the Senate seats. And because it's about data, our favorite data scientist, Dr. Julie Martinez Ortega, helped you crunch those numbers. So let's see if we can get her on the line so we can talk to her more about it. Hello, this is Julie. Hey, Julie, it's Charlene and Steve. Do you have a few minutes today to chat with us about the race to flip control of the Senate? Sure. We'll take you away from the, the beltway distractions that uh, uh, it's easy to get caught up in there. <laughs> um, so, but before we get into the, the details of the analysis, uh, let me just set the stage um, for our listeners for a moment. So if Biden and Harris win the presidency, then Democrats need a net gain of three seats to take control. There'd be a 50-50 split among the senators, and then Vice President Kamala Harris would be casting the tie-breaking vote. In terms of the landscape, then, so the Republicans are defending 23 Senate seats, while the Democrats are defending just 12 seats this year. So that's the context. So in, in that light, Julie, how do things look? Well, fortunately, looking at the available data we've got in terms of polling, fundraising numbers, voter edge, and turnout patterns, things are looking surprisingly good. We've got 11 Republican-held seats that are definitely in play, and two of those seats are very likely already to flip for the Democrats. They've sort of already just been put into the, the D column, and that's Arizona and Colorado. Um, so they need to win just two more of the remaining nine competitive seats to be able to be in that net three position. Oh, let me just also add one thing in terms of the following along at home on your calculators. It's net three. The Democratic seat in Alabama that Doug Jones holds is going to be a very tough seat to hold. I mean, it's a very Republican state, and it was a very unique set of circumstances by which Jones won it in a special off-year election. So the that's we're talking about net three 
And then if you have to factor in that we might not hold that seat, so then we'd have to have to win four of the 23 Republican seats. So if people are looking for races to focus on and where to send their money in these last few weeks, what do you suggest? Well, the short answer is Georgia and Texas. Um, that's what our analysis shows, and that's what Steve lays out in his nation column that's upcoming. So let me give you just a bit more background. Uh, what Steve and I've been working on is a more detailed analysis than what's currently out there in terms of the political analytics and predictions that you're seeing. So we believe that what's out there is really good, but from a statistical point of view, they are in fact not factoring in enough of the variables that shape political and electoral behavior to be as accurate as they could be. So specifically, the reality is that racial demographics um, in our country right now, where racial identity is one of the single most predictive variables in determining electoral behavior, is, um, is critical to be included in any sort of analysis. So let me see if I have this straight. So you're saying other analysts that are regularly putting out information out there that most people are probably, you know, getting access to more readily, like Nate Silver at 538, the Cook Political Report, Nate Cohen of New York Times, those analysts don't look at racial demographics at all? Well, not really. What they do do is very valuable and helpful. And I just argue that it's not enough. Um, it's a great base for other folks to come in and do additional work that sort of layers on top of that. So Nate Silver's 538 site does an excellent job of aggregating and reconciling all the available polling that we've got that um, helps generate these probability ratings for election outcomes, and those are really useful. And then you've got Cook Political Report. They have what they call the PVI, the Partisan Voting Index, and that's just comparing a state's voting patterns with the country's overall election results. And that's also a helpful piece of the picture because it helps you understand how a particular state or a particular congressional district behaves relative to what everyone else in the country is doing. But the additional variables that Steve and I have been adding are electoral trends as they relate to these changing uh, racial compositions of the populations and the, the eligible voting populations, right? And also the electoral potential that exists within different states and congressional districts, which has to really be based on the size of the infrequent voter population um, that's primarily people of color in order for it to be as accurate as it could be. So in Texas, for example, um, Beto fell just 200,000 votes short in the 2018 Senate race. Uh, but in that same election, there were 5 million people of color who didn't vote, right, but were eligible to have voted. So if you don't factor that in to your models, you're not going to end up with uh, models that truly incorporate the full reality of what's happening, what's likely to happen, and what could happen. Yes, I think what, what tends to happen is that many of the analysts and political consultants um, uh, who does need to be noted are largely white, and I guess I'll further note what I say is footnote five, chapter five of my book, some of my best friends are white, um, <laughs> that the, the, they tend to see these things after the fact instead of beforehand, right? So now it's pretty much common uh, wisdom. Everybody accepts the fact that Virginia's politics have shifted over the past decade and gone from being, you know, reddish, reddish purple to bluish purple blue. Uh, all of the top state offices are held by Democrats. Democrats control the state legislature. But 
it's taken a decade. And so groups like New Virginia Majority have been at work for that decade, turning that state's demographic potential into political power. And so Tran Nguyen wrote an op-ed in the New York Times about it last November that laid out how this had happened, but it wasn't a shock because you could see it in process. You had the numbers in terms of their population becoming more racially diverse. And what New Virginia Majority and other groups did is they helped to translate that population diversity into voting diversity. And then that led to the changing of the political character of the state. Similarly in Georgia, right? I mean, a lot of people doubted. It's so funny because she's become like so, you know, famous and accepted now under Stacey Abrams. But in 2017, the year before her primary election, when she first started out, there was lots of doubt and skepticism about whether that could be a competitive race. But if you had looked at the trends, the things that Julie and I are incorporating, it would have been clearer, right? Obama lost Georgia in 2008 by just 200,000 votes. And he didn't even contest the race. He didn't spend anything there. And he still only lost by five points, 200,000 votes. And then from 2008 to 2018, Georgia's population got significantly blacker. And during that time, nonprofit groups, groups like uh, a New Georgia Project, which is a you know, similar type of work to what New Virginia Majority is doing, they did great work registering hundreds of thousands of black voters. And then, which surprised many people, but not if you were paying attention properly, Stacey did in fact win more votes than any Democratic candidate who's ever run for statewide office in the history of Georgia. She got more votes in Georgia than Jimmy Carter did when Jimmy Carter ran for governor. She got more votes than Obama uh, did when he was on the ballot running for president. So the math had showed all along that she could win if people applied a color-conscious lens to the data. And that's what Julie and I have been refining um, and are sharing here is going to be in the, uh, the nation column. Uh, so I'm hearing Georgia and Texas are our specific recommendations. Julie and Steve, either one of you, if you could just talk more about who it is that people should be looking at and which campaign specifically should we be targeting resources at in these next final few weeks? Well, my view is that in terms of who is competitive but still needs money to to seal the deal, I'd say that the most strategic investments at this stage are going to be Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff in Georgia and MJ Hager in Texas. And to boost the turnout in those states, I would recommend supporting NGP Action Fund, the New Georgia Projects Action Fund, as well as over in Texas, the Texas Organizing Project. Those are two groups that are doing a really tremendous cutting edge state-of-the-art work in terms of turning out voters who have been traditionally low propensity. Thanks, Julie. And we'll make sure that we put links to those campaigns and those organizations in our show notes. What about other races like those in Maine or South Carolina? I know people are really mad at Susan Collins and Lindsey Graham. So what about those states? Right. So that's one of the, the fascinating things and somewhat frustrating is the intersection of the laws of behavioral science with the political science. And so political science, which Julie and I were just talking about, would lead you to the races that we just talked about, Warnock, Ossoff, Hager. But behavioral science reacts to lots of different types of things. So the, one example is in Kentucky, right? So you've got Amy McGrath running against Mitch McConnell, and everybody hates, hates, hates Mitch McConnell for very good reasons. But it's very hard to win in, in Kentucky. They're, they're, you know, fewer people of color. There's not a strong base of progressive whites there. 
there's very little empirical evidence that you're going to actually win that race statewide. But because everybody hates McConnell, they've sent over $50 million to uh, Amy McGrath. And so that's part of the challenge on trying to co- you know, correctly route resources to the places that are most winnable. And then, he, and then what Julie and I were talking about and recommending here now is also looking at the winnable races, but also who's got money and who doesn't need money. Right. And so if you take Jamie Harrison, South Carolina, a young African-American, former state party chair, very good brother. Jamie has raised almost $90 million. Wow. $57 million in the last quarter alone. That's more money than any Senate, Senate candidate has ever raised in the history of the United States in one quarter. And so you take that, and then there's only 3 million voters in the whole state of South Carolina. So Jamie's doing just fine. Right? So that's that. MJ Hager, on the other hand, has raised about $19 million, and she's running in a much larger state than South Carolina, right? Harris County alone, where Houston is, is bigger than South Carolina total population. And up in Maine, Sarah Gideon's a Democratic nominee um, there, and she's a great candidate. And she had raised $25 million as of June 30th, probably significantly more through the September 30th deadline, which will be out in a couple of days. But Maine's even smaller than South Carolina. There's just 1 million voters total in Maine. So the places that need the money and that are also winnable are Georgia and Texas, Asif Warnock, and Hagar. Okay, and so I'm also aware that we are also seeing close-ish races in surprising places that are so traditionally red, like Alaska and Kansas. Can you guys talk more about that? Yeah, so that's what Steve is saying in terms of that spillover effect from the, frankly, revulsion against Trump that people are feeling right now. Those races, they're, they're in play, but it's a much steeper climb when you look at who the voters are that you're going to have to move in order to pull out a victory there, right? And it's hard to determine how much of that revulsion will actually carry over into votes cast, right? And so given that, the safer and better bets are to really go and just try to tap as much as possible those hidden advantages that already we know exist in Georgia and in Texas. Julie, I just I keep hearing like you and Steve say Georgia and Texas, and I know we've said before in a, you know other um, episodes. What comes to my mind, and when I have conversations with friends who are progressives, Democrats, the kind of pushback that I get and I feel is understandable is people just not being able to wrap their minds around. And again, this is including myself often, really trying to believe that states like Georgia and Texas could go blue. I mean, they are so traditionally red. They're almost stereotypically red, you know, Georgia Deep South. Yes, it's getting blacker, but still, you know, it seems all like that, that the history of it is Republican, conservative. And same with Texas. So what do you what do you say to that? I would affirm that 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 is the the gut reaction that people have when they hear these places that seem so out there and, you know, out of the mainstream, right, being in play. But I think this is where that careful analysis and that ability to sort of have the the foresight um, to see, oh, look, there are these various cultural and demographic uh, trends going on in these places that have actually slowly transformed them into places that don't necessarily match the stereotypes that we, you know, have, right? I, I think of the the 
people I know in Texas under the age of 40, they're not wearing cowboy boots. They're working at Rackspace. You know, they're uh, techie people who, you know, from many of whom moved there from other places, uh, some of whom are from there and, you know, just sort of are much more in alignment with national uh, ideas about, you know, uh, whether it's race, uh, social justice questions, economics, whatnot. And it, it, these are things that are really easy, though, to overlook or to just be unaware about, um, you know, when you're not digging into that that data and looking at who are your CVAP people, right? Your citizens of voting age population, folks in these places, they've changed over time and are thinking about them. Our, our gut reactions have not kept up. Right. And I, I was going to say that uh, the, the risk of wading into popular culture references where I'm not strong, as I will illustrate in one second, but that I think that that conception people have is from the wrong popular culture frames of reference. And so people look at Texas and they see it through the lens of, you know, what the 80s show, whatever, Dallas, right? The big cowboy hats. <laughs> yeah, and that's what we, a, we grew up with. <laughs> right. So they're not looking at it through the lens of uh, Selena, right? Mm-hmm. The, uh, you know, the Mexican, Mexican-American singer who came from Texas, right? Which is a whole different, I still remember going to see the movie of Selena. The line was wrapped around the theater, all these Latinos coming to see it. And they had like handwritten signs in Spanish talking about how the line was wrapping around the theater <laughs> on the side. So you have that. And then here's my dangerous reference. They're not looking at Megan the Stallion, right? Who <laughs> I may or may not just have started Googling yesterday after she ran a op-ed in the New York Times about the images of black women face, right? I never was- thought that you would uh, her name would come out of your mouth but i'm very excited for your <laughs> development <laughs> what are we pop gonna, culture staying relevant baby step by baby step and so do commend everybody to her to her new york times op-ed and then apparently millions of people already know about her uh, music videos but she's from houston that's part of who is in texas as well and so you you take the the megan the stallion followers and you take the selena followers and then the, you know, there is a meaningful minority of whites there. That's who's within Texas. Mm-hmm. So there really is the population there that can be uh, the foundation for winning. And then one of the things I lay out in the nation column, I talk about there's two paths to victory in all these states, persuasion and mobilization. And so what we we're just talking about is mobilization is the core new American majority, people of color, progressive whites. Persuasion is trying to run ads to change the minds of these swing voters. And so Iowa, for example, that's another state which, whose Senate seat is in play, but it's all persuasion. It's a 90% white state. It went for Obama twice, and then it went for Trump by 10 points. So that's, a, that's probably the most swing state there is within the country. Mm-hmm. And as we discussed in our very, one of our very first podcast episodes a year ago with Pat Reinert and Irene Lynn, really looking at Iowa, so the advantage of those states like Georgia and Texas is that they have two paths to victory. They've got swing voters there, and you could try to persuade them, but you also have this hidden advantage of those large numbers of people of color who are infrequent, usually uninspired voters. And if you turn that out, that can be the key to victory. I really, really appreciate uh, getting insight from both of you. And little did I know that I would be in this episode having flashbacks to being a kid watching Dallas and that 
you know, that common catchphrase of a certain generation of us growing up, who shot JR? Mm-hmm. And then also having lyrics of Megan Thee Stallion running, running through my head. <laughs> and also, I think I will just say that I am, I am really glad, Steve, that you are tuning into it. Her op-ed was amazing and tuning into youth pop culture and been also the, there is very often in politics this connection to pop culture and vice versa and the, the having, having the mindset to keep all of it in context is really useful, including the very um, insightful way that you put it in terms of keeping in mind how each generation is changing and the demographics are changing in um, particular in the states that we were talking about, Georgia and Texas. So that was really, really interesting stuff. Thank you. Yeah, no, we should actually probably think about even doing a future podcast around this connection between popular culture and politics, um, because these folks have massive followings. And so what is the political potential um, implications of all of that? Should we get Cardi B to come on? Well, that would definitely boost our <laughs> listener numbers. So. Bad bunny. Um, but we don't have time for that today. Thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. Thank you, Dr. Julie Martinez-Ortega, for joining us. And we'd like to thank Dr. Wachter for taking time out to do an interview um, with us as well. You can follow him on Twitter at Bob underscore Wachter. He's a great read. If you've not yet subscribed to the Democracy in Color email list, you should get right on that and you can subscribe at democracyandcolor.com. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang and April Elkier, recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. And I'd like to close on a personal note, um, especially since we've been talking about sickness and health. Um, and I'd, I'd like to leave you with something you know, important to me, but will also hopefully be uplifting and inspiring to you. And as some people know, uh, my wife Susan is a cancer survivor. And this September marked the milestone of four years since her diagnosis. Susan's been getting amazing treatment from the University of California San Francisco Brain Tumor Center. And that's how we had the connection actually to Dr. Walker. And Susan spent the past two years working on a series of essays about her cancer journey, what's helped her navigate that journey, and various insights and resources. And we packaged those essays together into a book that's titled, When I First Found Out I Had Cancer. And the book is now available on Amazon. And there's also a companion website at braincancerandme.com, where there's an excerpt from the book and a long list of resources. So we put a fair amount of time into compiling these resources for other people who are dealing with cancer. And Susan wrote the book, and we built the website to be a resource for people dealing with cancer. So we hope you'll check it out and share it with anyone who might find it helpful. And as Susan says in her book, I hope there is something in my story that other people might find relevant or helpful to their own situations. And on that note, until next time, keep the faith.